0: That is a terrifying fucking image. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If God can't even get this shit together, then what are we doing?
1: <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God.
2: This is Not Church with John
1: and Nat Turney. Good morning, Vietnam. There you, know? you go. Assuming people are <laughs> that this morning again. Good. Insert time of day. Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody
2: Jeez. out in podcast land. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat. I'm with my brother John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. And this is this is not church, the podcast that you know, the podcast that you love. The podcast that sometimes you hate, according to some of our TikTok followers. Um, yeah. you really you really seem to be pissed <laughs> em John lately, John. I I do enjoy um sometimes poking whatever bears out. I'm not even sure that person lately is a real person. You ever just wonder of they're like, like electronic trolls Somewhere well, in the Christian weird, Federation going,
1: you know, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> the last two, the one do you see the one where the guy decided to tell me that even nature says men shouldn't have long hair? I'm like, it's the, it's What does this What the hell does that even, even mean?
2: <laughs> even nature says it's shameful for a man to wear long hair. I haven't heard that since the since the eighties when they used to do that shit to us in you know, in like youth group and stuff and because <laughs> we don't wear our hair long, like, oh no, oh no, it's a shameful for a man to wear long hair. And every picture I ever saw of Jesus walking around, they always had like a shaggy long hair and a beard. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't make no sense. But hey, this is before we introduce our guest. I do want to, I, I do want to recognize that there are three people at this point in time who are well bearded. Yeah, and I think that is worthy of some sort of recognition, right? <laughs> so, our, our guest today is the bearded one, Gabriel Gordon, and I'm going to read you a real brief bio, and we're going to jump into uh, into a conversation with him and. Just see where where everything takes us. What do you say? All right. So Gabriel Gordon graduated with a double major in anthropology and cross-cultural ministry from Oklahoma Baptist University. He's currently working on his Master's of Theological Studies with a specialization in biblical studies uh, from Portland Seminary. In addition, he's a confirmed member of the Episcopal Church, part of the Worldwide Anglican Communion, and one of the co-founders of the Misfits Theology Club, a blog, podcast, and annual conference dedicated to providing a place of dialogue and working to build unity amongst diverse Christians, he currently lives in Grand Junction, Colorado, with his wife Hannah and his dog. And this is amazing, Carl uh, Bart. So, welcome to the podcast, Gabriel. What's up, man? Uh, it's going well. You
0: know, when you we when you said the bearded one, that was eerily close to. I have been called the bearded dragon. So, oh, or, nice. Yeah, there you right? go. So, but I, I think your beards are much more likely to be called the bearded dragon. I don't. Well, I, I don't deserve be- that title. You guys. Yours
2: is, well, is, is, is much more well manicured and groomed. I mean, uh, you're, you're well bearded, <laughs> but mine looks like uh, I just literally stopped shaving about five years ago and let whatever happens, happen. So as my wife is fond of telling me, she's not super pleased. But I opened a, I opened a, a coffee shop and a little cafe um, going on a year ago now, and it's called the Bearded Barista. And mm. so I have actually become... That person that they call the bearded one when they walk in the shop, and if I'm actually working, they're like, "Oh my god, he's here! The bearded <laughs> barista is making my drink." And I'm like, <laughs> "It's very strange." It's become now I'm like, "I, I can't shave. What the hell would happen?" They, like they they boycott and wouldn't come back. But anyway, all of that being said, um, we're glad that you're here, and I, let's just let's just get started if we want, if you would, kind of like we normally do, getting a little bit of your uh, your uh, your 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 faith history, your journey. If you want to walk us through. You know, kind of where you, where you coming from, at least from a, from a faith standpoint.
0: So when I do share my story, I just kind of share it as my story because I think that life is can't not, cannot be separated into, you know, neat little categories. Mm, Um, Very true. So, you know, here it is. So I'm originally from the Northwest. Uh, My, I was born in Renton, Washington in the county of Kings, King County. So um, it's very special. Uh, My grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries. Uh, over in Japan and Thailand, which is where uh, my mom and aunt grew up. And I grew up without my father, um, who I came to find out was Jewish, ethnically Jewish from that side of the family. I didn't meet him till I was 18. But when I was three, my mom and I moved with my grandparents back to Thailand. And so just being kind of in that missionary environment, I remember asking a lot of questions about uh, Bible stories and Jesus and and uh, all those sorts of things. So it was faith was kind of, and, and thinking and, and, and asking questions was kind of part of my um, makeup, I think, from a from an early age. And uh, we ended up moving to Oklahoma when I was five, to a suburb of Tulsa called Broken Arrow. My mom went to uh, Rima Bible College there. And uh, if it, if you're from a prosperity gospel background, that might be familiar because that's actually one of the epicenters of the oh, prosperity yeah. gospel came out of rhema um and uh pastor uh, kenneth Hagen.
2: kenneth Hagen. Woof. yep so, um, I heard that name in a while
0: yeah so that was some of my early background i remember one of the days the pastors or his daughter i think it was um was talking about jesus and in that moment i was like you know i want jesus and so that that's kind of you know my faith journey began before that but that was kind of marker in some sense. Um, Shortly after we moved to Oklahoma, my mother got a new boyfriend and my mother physically abused me and her boyfriend sexually molested me. And so uh, shortly after that, I was taken away by the state of Oklahoma and uh, they sent me to go live with my grandmother who just moved back. She had just moved back to the States to Oklahoma because her husband, my grandfather, um, had left her for a Thai prostitute. This was the missionary. Holy and crap. so um, I was an atheist for a short while in the third grade. And around, so for the next couple of years, just was really angry at God and ended up staying out of church for a number of years. And at about 13, my grandma lost her job at Albertsons, uh, which went out of the, you know, you're in Texas. So, all the Albertsons in Texas and Oklahoma kind of yeah. went out of business. So she lost her job and we moved to uh, government housing. Um, we were living high on the hog when she was working at Albertsons, living in a trailer park. She made 18000 a year. That was high on the hog for us. And then she lost that job. So we moved to, like I said, government housing in Tulsa and kind of went down the income bracket a little bit. Uh, and so I grew up on food stamps and um, went to a really terrible inner city school. That was a really lonely year for me, but it was a year that uh God I think really used. I ended up getting uh baptized during that year and also had uh some pretty maybe mystical experiences, if you say it that way. And uh around this time I got into porn uh got into a lifelong pornography addiction, um, which also runs in my family, if you recall my grandfather, who lost my grandmother for a time prostitute and so uh, we ended up moving to South Dakota for a year and um, you know I'd kind of had that revival in my faith while we were in Tulsa but when we got to South Dakota I kind of went into my prodigal son years where I just wasn't really interested in following Jesus and seeing what that looked like and so uh, after being there for a year we ended up moving back to Thailand and the Thai prostitute had kind of left my grand um, kind of left my grandfather, but um, that's a long story in and of itself. But we were there for a year. And while we were there, we got connected to a Southern Baptist church, which Southern Baptists overseas are uh, a bit different than they are here in the United States. So we got connected to that. And my youth pastor, I was actually a pretty fat kid at that point. And um, he told me, hey, Gabe, um, you need to lose weight. And that was something I needed to hear. And So he actually gave me an eating plan and a workout plan and gave me history books, because um, I wasn't in school at that time, because my grandfather had promised to put me in international school, but didn't, and we didn't have the money for it. So, um, but the pastor's wife had, uh, actually had some educational specialists come out and test me, and I had a sixth grade reading level. I was 15, I was supposed to be a sophomore in high school. Um, so Mr. Dayton gave me, my youth pastor gave me uh, history books. I really started uh, getting into history and encouraged me to read scripture. And I started losing weight and, and really my, I, I won't say my life was coming together, but I was kind of figuring some things out. Uh, we ended up kind of getting kicked out of Bangkok from by my grandpa. So we moved back to Oklahoma. And, uh, long story short, we went to live in a woman's homeless shelter, single woman's homeless shelter for about a year and a half. Um, and I started attending high school again in Tulsa. Um, at that point, I, didn't think I was going to graduate high school. And um, got connected with another Southern Baptist church It was in, in, in Tulsa. And that was a really good time. I, I really grew in my face. Um, it was a really supportive environment. About the time I was going off to college, uh, a couple months before, I'd been asking the Lord, what um, what did God want me to do with my life? And I had this prophetic dream. Where I could see God the Father sitting on a throne, but everything was kind of silhouetted in darkness. It reminded me of the passage in Exodus where it says the Lord was on the mountaintop and throne and enshrined in darkness. And uh, God lifted up God's hand and pointed to me and said, "You are a prophet." And uh, I woke up. I told my grandma, and I was like, "What the hell is this about?" And uh, she, you know, being from a Pentecostal background, she didn't think I was crazy or anything like that. Um but didn't know what to do with that. So I kind of put that on the back stove, ended up going to Oklahoma Baptist University. And uh, uh, at the end of my first year, I went on a mission trip to Russia and met a uh, Pentecostal who um, encouraged me in my prophetic calling. And so I kind of came back and was renewed in my um, Pentecostal roots. And up to that point, I was very Southern Baptist. <clears throat> so I kind of became, in some ways, I feel like the Pentecostal pariah on campus to, to some people. and um, kind of spent uh, the next few years trying to figure out and discern what it looked like to, to live in the calling and role and function of a prophet. Um, and I had a lot of help along that way. But, uh, I was an anthropology major, as you mentioned, and, uh, as well as a cross-cultural ministry major. And it was through my anthropology professor, largely for the most part, who actually was an uh, Episcopalian, uh, who really taught me to question things. And um, I started to, for whatever reason, uh, around my sophomore and junior year, I started to question some of the theology that I had been brought up in um, surrounding the Bible. And the Bible was really the center and foundation of my faith at that time. And so for me, that deconstruction that began to happen was all centered around the Bible. I remember having kind of one of the I say that the, the first moments of that was an argument with that came out of, um, I was going to preach a sermon at this little tiny church in Duncan, Oklahoma. And for whatever reason at the time, I thought about not using scripture. And I told this to my roommate and he, we kind of got into this big argument. And from that, the question arose, well, if Abraham, did, did Abraham, uh, need scripture to be saved and to walk with God? And, and clearly the answer was no. Um, he couldn't give me a really good answer at that time. Um, and, and we're actually still friends to this day, but <clears throat> all that to say, that's kind of where it began. And so for the next, uh, 10 or so years, I really, maybe a little less than that, I really started to kind of deconstruct the, the theology around the Bible that was given to me to the point to where I left the Protestant. Um, I left fundamentalism. I left evangelicalism. I left Protestantism by the time I got um, out of college. Um, but I was still deeply connected to the uh, Christian tradition, but I didn't think i quite fit in the Orthodox or the Catholic at that point. And so um, ended up, long story short, worked at a fundamentalist summer camp. It was a terrible experience, um, but also a great experience in some ways. Went to work at a church, Southern Baptist church plant in Seattle, because I wanted to go back to the Northwest and got kicked out of that about six months into it. The pastor said I had pushed back too much and I was unteachable. So when I, I was engaged at the time, so I came back to Oklahoma and my wife and I pushed up the wedding and I got connected to the Episcopal Church, which is part of the Anglican tradition. And it was uh, really the first church that felt um, like a home. It was also, um, theologically, it was much more broad. All I had to affirm if I wanted to become a member was the Apostles' Creed. And so for me, that was um, a really great starting point. So became Episcopalian a couple years down the road. Uh, started going to seminary, um, really just because I wanted to learn, not because I wanted to get ordained or anything like that. Found out that a lot of my theology was heading towards, um, Eastern Orthodoxy. And there's a, a, there's a phrase for that in the Episcopal Anglican world called Anglo Orthodox, which basically just means I'm leaning, uh, my theology is Eastern Orthodox and leaning, even though I come from a tradition technically comes out of the Reformation. So,
2: yeah, that's a bit about. That's kind of a really short synopsis, but yeah, it's you know it, it's. <laughs> I love that there's a word for that because that pretty well describes me too. Up until I stumbled across the writings of Brad Jersack, I really wasn't. I hadn't. I didn't have anything. You know, I had no frame of reference with regard to orthodoxy. And then, of course, I love. I love Brad. So I'm like, okay, well, this theology I can get my head around um, for the most part. So I've um, yeah, I've just I've spent the last several years. Feeling very much like I align more, at least at least theologically and doctrinally, with the Eastern Orthodox Church than than certainly anybody else. But I also don't want to become Orthodox. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? I'm like I I still have issues. I, I have issues with 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 the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and so does Brad. But you know I have I have issues with their hierarchy, with their patriarchy. I, I'm sure you know who Brad is, but he uh, that's the reason that he's at the the level of the church he is at is he is self, he's self-limited. He's like, he, he won't rise any higher in the church than that will allow a woman to rise. So that's why he's a reader in the Orthodox church when he probably could have easily been uh, ordained a priest or something else at some point. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's for me. I just don't do institutional religion very well. Um, it's just not in my, but I do, um, as I read through, um, as I read the theology and I read the doctrines, you know what? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can buy that. That's a much more sane approach to stuff. And but let's let's talk about this book then, because that's that sounds like a a good place to jump off too. Because as you talk about deconstructing your kind of your beliefs around the Bible, kind of where you land in this book is sort of reevaluating what inspiration of Scripture looks like, right? Just just reading like the subtitle of your book, I'm, I'm going to guess that there's a that um, there's an open slash relational theological standpoint as well here too. Would, is that what would, would you? Is that a fair assessment? With yes a, and participatory no. Participatory theology.
0: Yeah, um, it's a little bit complicated. Um, I love complicated, because, man. Yeah, I love the fact that the the blog that I help facilitate is called Misfits, um, and part mm-hmm. of the reason why it's called Misfits is because I've always been a misfit. I'm a misfit in my own tradition. I'm a misfit. And the open and relational camp, I'm, wherever I go, I don't quite fit. You know, there are pros and cons to that. But, uh, so I affirm uh, Tom Ord's theology of a of kenosis, or more in layman's terms, God can't theology. Yeah. Um, and most people that do, I think, are open theists. I'm actually a classical theist. Okay. Um, I don't ascribe to open theism, and I don't pretend to know or understand process theology enough to even <laughs> attempt to say Amen. That, that I uh, I <laughs> have a process theologians. so
2: I would I would definitely call it relational. I wouldn't necessarily call it open. But uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, maybe for our listeners, um, just if if you could draw a line of distinction then between open theism and say classic theism. And uh,
0: warning, I you know this is not my you know I'm not an expert in this. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: No, we're looking for broad strokes here. We understand. So
0: <laughs> open theism, as I understand it, is a movement that came about in the last 30, 40 years. I think it started in the 80s. I could be wrong on that. I think it started with the book, The Openness of God, if I remember correctly. But part of uh, the theology says that um, God does not know the future um, and cannot know the future, not because they I don't think they would necessarily define it as a limit on God's power, but they say that... Um, if God knows the future, then there's no free will, as I think how they would say it. There are some other aspects to it, but I think that's the big one. And I think that's the one that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, and then essential kenosis is a theology that says that, uh, God's very nature is uncontrolling love and, and simply that God cannot, and we can maybe get into this more if you want later, but that God cannot, um, act outside of God's nature. So if God's nature is uncontrolled love, um, that means God necessarily gives freedom and, and can't take it away. And it's not a limit to God's power. Um, I actually think that's a very, um, maybe not completely modern, but it's not an old
2: way of thinking about God's power. It's more of an Augustinian Calvinist uh, way of understanding God's power. So. Okay. And so, in that, And so in that sense, because um, I remember reading Tom's. We, in fact, we had Tom Ord on shoot very, very early on to talk about God can't. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I remember joking with him that I'm like, I just think you're being provocative with the title. I just think you're trying to screw with us a little bit. And no, sure enough, he wasn't. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, <laughs> it is provocative enough that at least on his face, the title throws people off. They go, what do you mean God can't? And it really does interrupt their sense of the sovereignty or at least there's what they, what they conceive of as the sovereignty of God. Um, and I love that Tom challenges that somewhat and says, no, well, let's, the Bible's full of examples of, of things it says God can't do. Uh, yeah. So we're comfortable with God can't tell a lie. Um, why? Because it's in the Bible. It says so. And so so we, we already see limitations placed either by God's self or just like you said, he's not going to act outside of his nature. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's better than the old atheist conundrum of, you know, if God is all powerful, can he create a rock so heavy he can't lift it, which is just a come on, man. Uh, it's, it's actually a good question, but I don't know the answer. So I just get to go, come on, man. Um, <laughs> but as it relates to biblical inspiration, then is your, is your overall sense that God doesn't, you know, because our the evangelical upbringing that John and I had would have you believe that the Holy Spirit apprehended these people, right? Like almost possessed them, And then wrote the Bible through their hands. It's, it may be divinely inspired, but godly, it was, you know, it was the hand of God, which is why you can't argue with any jot or tittle that is inside of there, because every single piece of that thing is not just God breathed, but God acted. So, um, I'm guessing that you would challenge that assumption. Yeah, I would. And, um, like
0: I said, I'm really influenced by Eastern Orthodoxy. And in the Western Church, the way we tend to think about inspiration from kind of a broad stroke is that inspiration is located in the minds of the authors or in the text itself, and and often in fundamentalist circles, it's, it's both. Sometimes they focus on one over the other, but oftentimes it's it's a combination of those. But in the Eastern Church and in the early Church, inspiration wasn't located primarily in the minds or the, the texts of scripture, but it's actually located in the the reading of scripture and its interpretation. Um, and this is important because I think we we tend to think this this shapes how we read scripture. So in the modern period out here in the West, the Eastern Orthodox still doesn't do this, but in the modern period out in the West, we think about that what is, and this is actually where I would be distinguished from a lot of open theists is the, in the way we read scripture. And moderners, Modernist people think about uh, that the biblical meaning is the original intended meaning by the authors in its own cultural context. And I think that that wasn't the case for 1700 years until modern biblical scholarship arose in Germany. And why did the Germans get to tell everybody how we should read the Bible? Right. White, white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, but this is, a lot of this is tied, the way we read the Bible and what's considered biblical is tied to our understanding that inspiration is located in the minds or the text itself. But in the early church, it, again, it wasn't in the text itself, it was in the reading itself. It was in Christ, if you will. So in, because it was in the, the, the inspiration was located in Christ in the reading of scripture, the, that's also where the meaning is located. So the true biblical meaning isn't the original intended meaning. Who cares what it originally meant? Um, it's, it's located in, um, in Christ, who becomes the one present in the text. So the way I kind of like to think about this is, so Origen in the third century, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, he goes to, he's commenting on um, Matthew 5, uh, 39, kind of that area. A scripture where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, right? Um, so he begins to describe scripture metaphorically as a net. Net. Scripture was the net, um, and before Christ came, it had yet to be filled. And then he cites Matthew 5, 39. So he seems to understand this Greek word, um, which is palero, which is the word that we translate as um, fulfilled. He seems to understand this as, at least with another meaning, which is to fill. And actually, the, the Greek word plero can be translated as uh, not just fulfilled, but it can be translated as to fill. And so if we go back to Matthew five thirty, or sorry, not Matthew 5, but Matthew 17, and we translate, kind of taking our cue from origin, we translate this word plero as he kind of understands it, to fill, then what we get is more of a sacramental understanding of that text where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets but I've come to fill them. And who has he come to fill them with? He's come to fill them with himself. And so if we look at, say, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed. Right. Um, well, what does that mean? What It, it seems to me that the author, uh, well, one, they're coming up with that word. That's a new word, which all words are made up, right? But they're coming up with this new word, um, God breathe. It's a compound word that didn't really exist before this author it doesn't exist in the Roman world, doesn't exist in the Greek world or the Jewish world. Um, and the first time it's really used outside the New Testament is with the church fathers. But it seems that the author of 2 Timothy is actually referencing back to Genesis, to the creation of, um, of Adam, where it says that there's two parts to the creation of man. The first part is that God forms man out of the dust of the ground. And then the second part is he breathes, right? He breathes it in. And he breathes the life of God into Adam, and, and who is the life of God? John fourteen six says, Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." So Jesus is the life of God, um, and the Holy Spirit, as the Nicene Creed says, is the giver of life. So the Holy Spirit breathes in the life of God into Adam, Christ, and that seems to be what is the, the second, the author of Second Timothy three sixteen is getting at. He's not saying all Scripture is God formed, which is that first part, the creation Adam which would be more of the way I think fundamentalists understand it, but it's saying that it's God breathed, which is, again, that's that's how, it's in the reading or interpretation of scripture that inspiration is located, not in the text itself. And so if we look at Matthew five seventeen 17 and the Genesis passage, we can kind of understand 2 Timothy three sixteen as a jelly donut, uh, or scripture is mm, a go. jelly donut, right? The jelly donut analogy. So scripture is the jelly and the Holy Spirit is, you know, the 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 thing with the, the goo in it. I don't know what that's called, the baker's goo. <laughs> um, and, and Jesus <laughs> the is the jelly. The and so the Holy Spirit squeezes or breathes the jelly into the donut, thus sacramentally feeling or incarnationally filling Scripture with the presence of Christ. And this is why the church for 1,700 years, I think, that might be too big of a statement, but I'm going to say it for now. This is why the Spirit, all the church for 1700 years had a spiritual meaning of scripture right they had the literal meaning the bodily meaning or the yeah the, the sorry the literal bodily meaning the uh the the secondary or soul and then in the in the spiritual meaning or the allegorical meaning and the allegorical or spiritual meaning is Christ himself in the text and so it's because of this sacramental understanding that Christ himself is the one that's present in the text that we have a spiritual meaning um and because he is our lord the primary way of reading scripture is therefore according to the spiritual meaning or Christ himself rather than the literal meaning. So Origen goes on to say that, you know, sometimes the literal meaning is uh, in, is impossible. Not all the time. We still, we don't completely get rid of the literal meaning. Uh, they're not dualists, right? You know, they can have both and. But sometimes the literal meaning is completely contradictory and it doesn't line up with the revelation of, of God. And Origen also, you know, talks about that Christ himself is revelation. And so. Right, right. So if it doesn't line up with the, the revelation of God, um, then, then we, we do away that we don't read it according to the literal meaning. The primary Christian meaning of scripture is Christ himself, is the spiritual meaning of scripture, um, which is kind of that incarnational language that Origen and a lot of the church fathers use that, that scripture, the literal bodily meaning of scripture is actually the body of Christ. It's, it's, and, and, and the spiritual meaning within is, is, is Christ the Word. Um, so he, it is, the scripture becomes an incarnation of, uh, of Christ in a similar, although not all together, same way as, uh, the incarnation of the Word in the person of Jesus.
2: Yeah. Well, which was said to me means you can very easily have the scriptures devoid of any inspiration if the inspiration is not located in the text itself, but in the, but in the reading of the text. Which is why you can get so many uninspired readings of texts. Who just said, "Hey, look, the Bible says so," right? This is the the sort of flat literalist reading. You know, Brad's book, um, "A More Christlike Word," he refers to this as the Emmaus the Emmaus way of reading the Bible, right? Where you carry Jesus with you into the text, and he shows you that this is the, what this means in light of who of what you know now, right? But it also struck me that you know, I've talked about this in my church a few times, and I've preached this message and. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, you know, the Bible, the, the scriptures are God-breathed. And like, so was Adam. Um, and yet Adam was not infallible, inerrant, or perfect. So it's possible to be both and inspired, <laughs> divinely inspired, and yet still um, have issues and have problems. And so for so long, the fundamentalist church loves to elevate the scripture, you know, to the fourth member of the Trinity, and, you know, imbue it with all kinds of, you know, borderline godlike qualities. Um, to the point where you can't question or challenge anything that's in there because it's all, you know, it's all perfect and inerrant. But um, so so all of this seems to say that um, the meaning is not found necessarily just in the words, but in, in the reading of the words, in the light of what Christ has revealed. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think so. And, and Broad's book is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and if you had to pick one of... Uh, my book or brads i would uh, tell the listeners to pick brads um, but, but they <laughs> no, are no, no. a great <laughs> I wouldn't do this either
2: pick both pick both man <laughs>
0: if you do pick both they're great to read together i think yeah, I, would, um, I would think because, so. i just yeah cuz he focuses more on reading scripture and my book is lacking that um so i kind of talk more about the inspiration yeah. of scripture um but i think they actually would be read really
2: well together no i think that and i think that's brilliant man i, I love that i i don't know i just I, I've, I've had an issue, um, John probably is in the same boat with me, uh, my whole life, because of the way that Scripture is handled inside of the evangelical church, um, it's an all-or-nothing proposition, always. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's either all true, or you might as well throw it all out. And that's what, yeah. is, that's what drove me away from it, for the most part, was because of that all-or-nothing proposition. So if I ever pointed out an issue, I had, well, you know, you... Look at Genesis has two creation accounts. You know, it seems to be somewhat contradictory. You know, God says thou shalt not kill. But then the Old Testament tells me that he kills by the, you know, he kills by the scores and the tens of thousands. Does not not seem like a contradiction and whatever. If I ever even remotely suggested there was some sort of allegorical meaning to any of it, it was always like, well, if I can't believe this, then the whole thing is garbage and let's just throw the whole thing out. And I think wow. that's really a symptom
0: of our uh our the dualism that comes from our Gnosticism. Um fundamentalism is, is rampant with Gnostic theology, um, which for those who might not know what Gnosticism is, it's it's the belief that um creation, material, uh physicality, uh our bodies um is bad oh, yeah, and me spirit, or spiritual things are good. Um, and that we're saved by our knowledge, and and it's a very dualistic way of looking at the world, and and fun, that's what I was raised on. As a fundamentalist, I was raised with a with a gnostic uh, way of looking at the world, and I think that that, that dualism. I've heard I, I I've exactly heard pastors say the same thing that you this is either completely true with no errors or is completely error. No, it it's absolutely. filled Everything in, yeah. is an error, um, and that's just that's dualism that I think comes from our. Fundamentalism. And it's not helpful for building faith. It's, I think, helpful
1: for making atheists. Looking at it the other way, where you, you say, okay, I find, I, I find it okay to challenge and question scripture and look at it with a critical eye. And I think Nat would agree with this too, that, um, for me, it opened it up and made it actually more it more believable uh when i give it when i give it permission or whatever you want to call it to not be perfect and you know for lack of a better description you know god inspired in the sense that god wrote down every damn word but that maybe maybe some of this was just us as human beings getting uh getting it wrong and misunderstanding who who god was at the time and so you get to hear this this journey, right, of these people trying to figure out who God is and who they are within God, I find it more believable, more acceptable.
2: Well, I find it, yeah, and I find it more compelling. Yeah. I guess way more interesting to me that, because what I've what I've said for a long time now to people in my church, you know, I still pastor a small church, and it's small because I say stuff like this, you know, and in West Texas, it doesn't play all that well, but... What I've said for a long time is what the, the Bible, I don't believe to be an errand. I think what it does inherently is give a really good snapshot of what people thought about God at the time that they were in, how they saw themselves, how they saw God, and whether they were right or wrong, you know, I, I, I think that's left for us to somewhat, you know, to, to, uh, to determine. I mean, but given the trajectory of scripture, right, where there's an arc to the story that's leading us someplace, culminating in the revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ. I can then look backwards and go, okay, I can see, you know, this can't be, I think Origen had it right in a lot of ways, you know, where he's looking at, he's looking at the the God of the Old Testament saying, this does not line up with who I see Jesus reveals his Abba to be. And so I can see where he had issues with, with the entirety of the Old Testament. I know there was, there was issues with, you know, and I'm sure Marcion had his issues with it. And, you know, there were, there were difficulties there. And there always have been, what what always was disquieting to me about the evangelical church was they didn't want to even recognize there were issues. Like like you just stick your head in the sand and you swear up and down that everything harmonizes and is perfect. And if there's an error in anything, it's in your understanding of it. And so then there's no dialogue forward from there, right? Yeah, I'm going
0: to add a
2: thought to that, but I sure. first
0: want to add a uh, a thought before that to filter this through, you know, I think that, uh, what I've, what I have noticed, um, you know, I come from an entirely fundamentalist background. I went to a fundamentalist college. I know lots of fundamentalists that love Jesus. Absolutely. Um, and I think that oftentimes, um, you know, there's this great prayer by Thomas Merton, the prayer of discernment, where he says, you know, I don't know if what I'm actually doing is pleasing to you, but I think I have the desire to please you. And I think that in fact pleases you. And I think that's the way we need to, um, someone like me who struggles with being jaded to people in my fundamentalist background is I need to look at the majority of them. I, think, I don't think this is true for all fundamentalists, but I think the majority of them, they believe what they believe and they practice what they practice because they think that's the best way to be faithful to God because of that desire to please God. Um, even though what they might be doing and believing isn't exactly pleasing to God. Um, so I wanted to say that before, because what I'm about to say is very critical. So <laughs> that being said, one of the, the pieces of, of writing I've recently worked on is I talk about how the, um, the way that we read scripture today didn't exist in the Orthodox Church. And by Orthodox, I just mean, you know, um, uh, not Heretical didn't exist in the Orthodox Church in the in, in the early Church. Where you did find it in the in you know a couple you know fifteen hundred almost two thousand years ago was with the, the heretics, with the Gnostics and and the Marcionites. So the, the literal historical and again there's still distinctions of that because the way we do literal historical readings is influenced by the Enlightenment, which hadn't happened. But the it, it, the, the closest. Parallel to that is within the Marcionites and the Gnostics, and, and they read the Old Testament, quote unquote, literally. But, but the, so they, so modern fundamentalists make the same mistake, and they're reading the scripture as the heretics did, but the heretics of old did not go as far as the fundamentalists today. Because the everyone in the early church, the Orthodox and the Heretical groups, both looked at scripture and they said, if we read the Old Testament literally, it cannot line up with the image of God in Christ. So the Orthodox church said, well, then we don't read it literally. And I'm, again, simplifying it. So we don't read it literally. And so we go with the picture of Jesus and we read it allegorically, we read it sacramentally. The 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 Gnostics and Marcionites said, no, we, well, we have to read it literally, so we just have to reject the Old Testament because it's not in line with who Jesus is. The fundamentalists go further than the heretics of old because they say, they read it literally, but then they they don't actually go with Jesus. The Marcy and Gnostics were actually still Christocentric in the, in the way they handled the Old Testament in the sense that they, they went with Jesus. If they had to choose, they went with Jesus. And um, I find that really interesting and, and problematic that in fundamentalism we're more we're more likely to go with our literal um, historical readings rather than with
2: Jesus if we have to have a literal historical reading well and forced into a sort of Sophie's choice right where uh if if the, if the if the premise is uh, we can't abandon literalism which I think is absurd but if, if that's the premise and then you, you are given a stark choice I think and Marcion made the given his predisposition to read the scriptures literally, then I think he made the right choice. You know, at least he made, like you said, the Christiocentric choice to go, well, given the option between, you know, Moses and Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus and reject the other stuff. And I think that's actually more honest than, like you said, it's way more honest than the current fundamentalist evangelical viewpoint, which is, oh, we know it doesn't look like Jesus. We just don't care.
0: <laughs> We're just gonna,
2: you know, and I, I will grant you that I know, you know, I think that I think this holds true for the vast majority of evangelicals. I think they do love Jesus. I, I'm not willing to give them a pass on this, though, and 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 say that I don't know that they love Jesus less than they love their own politics or that they love Jesus less than they love their own sense of rightness because they have they're just not movable on this. And even in the face of clear evidence, that they're hurting people with their literalism. They don't care. You know, and I've, I've had multiple conversations with folks where your literal reading of scripture is harming the LGBTQ community so physically. Like you're, you're causing them to die and self-harm and engage in risky and dangerous behavior um, by your rejection of them because of your literal reading of scripture. Um, you're making the wrong choice, man. You don't get a pass on that just because you love Jesus. Um, your loving of Jesus cannot manifest itself in your hating of somebody else, your exclusion of them. Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you. I think they do love Jesus. um, I just think it's possible to love jesus and and allow that that whatever whatever that love of Jesus looks like to actually manifest itself as harm to others and and that 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 can't stand right John? Well, uh,
1: yeah well, and sadly what their argument then is uh you know phrases like uh well it's a it's a tough love, right uh because I yeah, love fuck your tough love yeah <laughs> because i love because I love you so much. I will not accept your whatever, right? And right. whatever um, they think is going to send you to hell, right? Um, because you know, at the end of the day, what what we're trying to do here is save you from the fiery depths of hell. And I, I've made this argument with somebody who is uh, I would consider, you know, fundamentalist evangelical, and you know, they're this this notion that they're saving the world from hell. And you know, pardon my French, my question was like, what the fuck are you doing then? uh working here with me at this this meaningless job. If you really believed you needed to save the world from hell, you would have quit your job. You would be wandering the earth, saving individuals one at a time, twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year. And you're not. You're not. Because deep down I don't think you even I don't think even you believe this idea of this eternal conscious torment as the ultimate goal of God. But you you've been you've been You've bought into it so well that this is the, this is the rhetoric that you speak over and over and over again. But I think if they were to really sit back and think, I'm like, I don't know if they, I don't know if they can defend it. I guess is the the end of it. Yeah, and and I, I again, I
0: blame Gnosticism for this issue because they have this Gnostic perspective that that you're saved by knowledge, and so if you don't have this correct knowledge, this correct belief. Then you're going to, you know, burn in hell. And, and even like, you know, um, I'm not a universalist. Um, I would define myself as an inclusivist, but this notion of hell as a place that God is going to send you as punishment, I think is is not the best um, of the Christian tradition. Like if you read um Robert Barron, who's a Catholic Bishop of LA, his book on the Catholic tradition, when he gets to um, talking about hell, he's, he says, um, hell is not a place that God made. Hell is a place that we create and it's not a place that, you know, people send you. So I think some of these understandings of hell, I think have more to do. They're tied up with obviously the penal substitutionary atonement. Um, and this wrathful understanding of God and then this Gnostic understanding that you have to have the right beliefs in order to be saved. And I, I don't know, I just, I think that's missing the point. And, and even if even if we grant that, which I don't, th- it's a very low view of God present in the world because it says evangelism is our responsibility and if we fail at it, this person is going to burn in hell forever. But the question is, well, what is God doing in the midst of this? And And I think a, a better view to have is to say that God is actually the primary evangelist and evangelism... Uh, proper is us participating with God and what God is already doing in the hearts of people, not us having this secret knowledge that we have to share in order to to save people. Because that, I mean, that's just a lot of pressure.
2: It's a ton of pressure, oh, you know. Yeah. Uh, as, yeah. As, a, as a as a young teenager, I mean, you know, in an, in an evangelical church that you know we went to youth group all the time. John and I both did, and uh, you know, one of the favorite pastimes was to go witnessing. We're going to go downtown. and We're going to witness. You know, we're going to pass out tracks, and we're going to pretty much all we do is offend people. You know, I, I, I used to say I'm not a universalist. I think I'm as close as I've ever been to being one um, simply because i I'm just gotten to a point where I can't wrap my head around, I just can't wrap my head around a God of mercy and love. Um, it, it's a certain, I, I absolutely reject the fundamentalist understanding of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. I just, that, that that's untenable to me. And if you had sat with the woman I sat with yesterday as a pastor, sitting in my church racked with fear and grief and pain over a granddaughter that just committed suicide who is not who is not a professing Christian and she is just terrified that her granddaughter that she loves to death is burning in hell and I had the opportunity to sit with her for 15 minutes after church and say no I don't think so well why not Okay. Well, let me ask you one question. And I I sort of walked her down the Brad Jersack road that I, that I've stole this from a more Christ-like God, which is one of my favorite whole passages of that book. And I just walked her through this process of like, what do you, you know, what do you imagine Jesus would do in this situation? You know, would you, would you condemn your granddaughter? No, of course not. Can you picture Jesus doing this? Well, no. Oh, then is your morality better than God's? You know, and sort of just walked through this process. She, and I, I won't say she walked away. Convinced, but she walked away feeling better. The the but religion has done a really good job of taking situations like that, taking people who are already in pain and in grief and then piling on and saying, Oh, on top of all this tremendous loss you're feeling, now let's worry about their eternal future. And uh to me again that's a that's a an inexcusable borderline crime that we've that we've committed on people.
1: Let's take let's take a literalist Perspective of sin for just a second. So we say that Adam and Eve sinned because they had the knowledge of what they were supposed to do and didn't do it. Right? They did the opposite of what God told them to do. So that was the supposedly man. right. So Don't this is supposedly it. their sin: having the knowledge of not to eat of the of the tree, right, and doing it anyway. So take that to its literal end, which is uh, in this evangelical church that we. Are talking about the knowledge is you are to go and save the world, and you don't, but you have the knowledge that you're supposed to. So you're sinning every day by not saving people. So guess where you're going? Yeah, and and you know,
0: I I actually like the Aaron An. Um, have you heard? Have you two heard of the Aaron Ann perspective on the
2: fall? Uh, yeah, but remind us. Yeah, it was it's good stuff.
0: So the Aaron Ann perspective on the fall, um, which I think I ascribe to, is the idea that just as a child as it's learning to walk is going to stumble and that that stumbling is necessary to build the proper muscles to be able to walk um that that's how uh that's how we should look at the falls that adam and eve were children that were stumbling in their uh quest to learn how to walk and that we're still learning how to walk uh john bear who's an eastern orthodox Scholar, he talks about how if you look at the Gospel of John, that's constantly referencing back to Genesis. That in in the in the that what's going on in Jesus's death when you know he's on the cross and uh, Pilate says, "Behold, a human being," and then Jesus says, "It is finished." But, uh, that we tend to interpret it as finished as um, that Jesus's declaration that his suffering on the cross is done it's over. He's, he's about to die. Um, but he actually argues that John is referencing back to Genesis in the beginning when it says that God, in the creation story, God said, let it be, let it be, let it be, which in Greek is an imperative. Um, so it's like a command. So God says, "You know, let there be light, and there is light. Let there be land, and there is land. But when God gets to the creation of human beings, God does something different. God says, let us make a human being in our image. So, so it's a it's a process. It's a subjunctive in Greek, which is, implies possibility. And so, when so that the creation of man or human beings in Genesis began, but God didn't finish it. It it, it was finished in Christ on the cross, when Pilate said, "Behold, a human being." Jesus says, "It is finished." The completion, the creation of a human being is now finished. Um, and it happens through the process of laying down your life and love for your neighbor, and so that fits in with that whole a n view is that that humanity is it, it, starting with the fall is learning how to walk we're learning how to be human, which
2: I think is more helpful' it's, it well it's much more helpful because the you know again the standard party line that I was raised up with is pretty much the the universality of adam's sin condemning all future generations, like your default position before God at the moment of your birth, you drew your first breath and you were a sinner. Like in that moment, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> now I used to preach this to my to my to my youth group when I was a youth pastor. And I would say, listen, you know, I'd try to find an encouraging way to put this and say, listen, you're a sinner, but it's not your fault. You you're born that way. You were born. Adam's sin has been imputed to you, but it's okay, there's good news. Christ has made a way out, you know? But it doesn't stand up to even sort of basic logic and reason, you know, that, that, you you know, because most, most fundamentalists will, will, um, would, would confirm that Adam's sin universally damned humanity, like without question, without exception, every single human being that ever went forward from Adam on, um, is, is universally condemned. And then Jesus is, yeah, sort of barely, mediocrely he's like sort of kind of successful in redeeming a few of us you know and so in 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 that view of scripture if you read it that way jesus is like like adam i don't know man he's like he's like 10% of adam's effectiveness you know so first adam apparently much much more effective in his universal condemnation than jesus is rather than look at the scripture that says that as in christ as in adam you know all died so in christ all will live um, we don't see that undoing, that reversal of fortune with you know with Jesus. Um, We only see a partial rescue attempt, you know. So and that always sort of struck me as very strange. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird that way, John. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, we're always supposed to be like Jesus was the second Adam, right? He's supposed to be like Adam two point oh. He's <laughs> supposed to be the the new and improved yeah. Adam, and yet. He can't seem to actually get done what he wants to get done. Well, even in college,
0: I had thought, and this is where I started heading more towards an Eastern understanding of, of, of Adam and, and so forth. But even in college, I remember thinking like, did God make such crap that the moment we make a mistake, we're just totally broken, like yeah. completely broken? Like God doesn't make good stuff, if that if that's the case. And
2: Yeah, I mean... What, whatever, whatever kind of warranty came with us is not worth the paper it's written on. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and, a, well, and again, to, under, to understand, the, the, this is the fundamentalist point of view. Now, if you're listening today and you're not one of us um, or recovering one of us, this doesn't make any sense to you because it was probably never taught to you this way. And thank your lucky stars. All right. But we weren't sinners because of anything we did. You know, it, you couldn't even point to some crime I committed, you know, okay, well, when you were eight and you were apparently of, you know, whatever, whatever age of accountability they decided to ascribe, you know, at some point, you know, you did something and that was enough to, to, to bring about the the judgment of God against you. No, no, no. We're talking, taken to its logical extremes, infants that die in, you know, before they could even vocalize a confession in would, would obviously be going to hell. And so taken to, its logic, taken to its logical, absurd extremes, um, hell should be populated with, you know, 90% infants probably, which just is absurd, right? I mean, that's just absolutely nuts. Yeah,
0: and this goes back to, you know, Augustine introduced this kind of thinking. I read Cathetical um, uh, Discourse, which was written by Gregory Nissa, but the translator, who's an Eastern Orthodox scholar, uh, Ignatius Green, I think, he talks about, in, in a footnote, Let's show my nerds coming out. footnote, he says that uh, Augustine was the first, and there's probably debate on this, but he says Augustine was the first uh, Christian to bring in uh, fateism or deterministic thinking from into the church. That before Augustine, only the pagans believed in this idea of fate of predestination. And, uh, Augustine was the first Christian to bring it into the church. And of course, Augustine is the one that gave us original sin, um, that didn't exist before him. And the Eastern, if you read Justin Martyr, Origen, Gregory Nisa, um, a lot of the church fathers, when they talk about our ability to do things, so they never say, um, uh, they don't believe in this total, this understanding of humanity that we, Have God has to give us grace in a particular moment for us to be able to do something good. That's a Protestant understanding, um, which I which I find it may be Catholic, but definitely Protestant. But in in the East, it's no God gave us grace when God created us with the ability to choose good or evil. So throughout a lot of the at least the Eastern Church fathers, they talk about how. We have the ability to choose evil and the ability to choose good. And if we do not, then we are not responsible for the evil that we do. And the way that total depravity gets mixed up with the original sin is, you know, you don't have that ability not to choose sin. So
2: yeah, yeah, there's no.
0: So you, how can you be guilty for something that you're you have no other choice
2: about? You know? Well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's that it go back to that same sort of notion of God putting Adam and Eve in a garden. If you if you know again if you if you read the story literally. God has got to understand, I know he does, um, what's going to happen when you put Adam and Eve in a garden and say, all of this is yours, except that. I'm a finite human being, and I know if I put my kid in a room and tell them they can play with anything in the room except that thing, that's the first thing they're going to, man. So basic human nature, as understood by the creator of said human nature, has set them up for a problem. So if you read the story literally, that always bugged me too. Even as a kid, that bugged me. I'm like, what did they think they were going to do? I mean, how long could they not eat the damn apple? I mean, it's right, or whatever it was, a persimmon or a... For me, it would have to be like a papaya or something to tempt me. I'm not, apple wouldn't tempt me. But they have to sit there and look at this tree and be like, well, that's the one thing you said we can't have. Oh, and now it's really the only thing I want, you know? And so we're set up with these... Now, I think... Obviously, an allegorical reading of that story, and there's you know looking for the spiritual truths there makes a lot more sense. But but apparently that you know again when you get to a to a much more modern literalist flat reading of scripture, what you get is that's the origin of all of our problems going forward. So I I I wasn't born with a choice whether or not I was going to be a sinner, irrespective of my choices. I was I was already born that way, and that's that's thanks to Calvin and his total depravity and his you know, his understanding of of free will or lack thereof. But yeah, it's all very, very problematic. But
0: there's a, a great book I'd recommend for those of us who did grow up, The Total Provity Original Sin by Nana Verna Harrison. She's an Eastern Orthodox patristic scholar. And it's called um oh man, I'm blanking on the name of it. Um it's about it's about an Eastern Orthodox perspective on all of this um it's called god's many splendored image okay um and it's it's phenomenal i highly recommend it to those of us who come from
2: yeah i'm adding it to my list right now
0: and so it's that, really it's this, really
2: accessible too it's not a hard read okay yeah nana verna Harrison. Right,
1: okay cool. i love that more books to add to the stack people john go ahead i, bud. I just I, again back on this like this literalist view of god so if you take a literalist view of god and then you take it, it, it with the uh the Adam and Eve story. So you only are, you can only have two options then. Either God is really bad at making human beings. <laughs> yeah. Or he did make us in his image and he also has a lot of issues. He, she, they. <laughs> right? Because if we are made in the image of God and we have all these issues, that means God does too. I mean, if you take this literal idea to its nth degree, it's one or the other. Either he's really not good at this, she's not good at this, they're not good at this, or they are also broken. And they that's the best they can make. That is a terrifying fucking image.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if God can't even get this shit together,
2: then what are we doing? <laughs> you heard it here first? That's a terrifying fucking image. I love it, man. (laughs) But it is, it is, you know. And again, well, this is why I think books like yours and this sort of thinking like yours and others, even if we don't ever, you know, even if there's places of disagreement there, it it moves us forward in the dialogue because what evangelicalism, what fundamentalism has done, what really ultra conservative, you know, Protestant Christianity has done is paint us into corners and force us to make choices that are, are, they're not real choices, actually. Um, they've set up false premises and asked us to make choices. And then what we end up with is this twisted doctrine sometimes that just through sheer repetition and, you know, because it's been vocalized by people with some degree of celebrity. I mean, this is what passes as mainstream Christian thought when, man, the the, the slightest degree of critical thinking applied would make you go, no, that's bullshit. Like, they they can't possibly be that. And so... We need, we need voices like yours um, and others who are, who are saying these kinds of things to, 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 at the very least, keep the dialogue moving, I think. Yeah,
0: and, and I think that, man, you know, it really disheartens me to see fundamentalism voicing itself as the Christian faith. Um, there was an article written a few years ago, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was by Elisa Childers,
2: Oh yeah. Probably. Um,
0: and she wrote an article about like you know five ways you can tell your church is heading towards progressive Christianity, and what she talked about in the book in the article was essentially she or the underlying assumption I should say was that fundamentalism was historical Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And I and, read that article. Yeah, and some of and some of those things I think you could argue. Okay, well this is new. You know we can argue whether it's good or not. Just but some of these. I think are probably new, but some of them um that she listed in his historical Christianity like inerrancy, that's not new, right? That's I'm sure this is I'm preaching in the choir here. But you know, inerrancy comes from the last hundred hundred and fifty years ago.
2: Yeah, I mean it's well and it doesn't really get firmed up until the Chicago Statement on inerrancy. I mean, it's a very, very modern construct, right?
0: Yeah. So and and one of the things I think I've realized recently, and I've um I've started to write on this and and a book I've put on hold, but um, is that if we think about what liberal Protestantism is coming out of the nineteenth early 19th century, liberal Protestantism is the idea of accommodating Christianity according to modern sensibilities. Well, what is fundamentalism? Wow. It's a trying to accommodate according to modern sensibilities. So it's not separate. You know, We talk about the modernist fundamentalist debate as that they're two separate camps. They're not. They have the same methodology. They're, wow. Fundamentalists are a kind of liberal Protestant. They're, they're all assuming the same modern ways of thinking. So both of them ask the question. And this is why I don't ask the question anymore. Both of them ask the question, isn't, is the Bible narrant? They're, they're still asking the question. Just the, the quote unquote liberal side says no. And then the quote unquote conservative side says yes, but they're still asking the question. They still have the idea of certainty that comes from the from the Enlightenment, they still so it, they still are dualists. It, so it's a really interesting so what I would like to see is that fundamentalism gets decentered. And part of what I hope to do in, in talking about it as a kind of liberal Protestantism is to kind of expose um it for what it is. That it, it's not traditional Christianity. You know, we can argue if we want traditional Christianity, but we at least have to recognize that it's not traditional Christianity. Right. Um, and that most of Christians today, like, for instance, there's two billion Catholics in the world. And of course, a lot of fundamentalists will say, well, Catholics just aren't Christians. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, progressive Protestants will say that too. Um, sometimes I read um, Christian Smith, he he wrote a book called um, Biblicism Made Impossible or something mm, okay. like that. And he's, he's a Roman Catholic and he was taught in the back. He talks about how some of these, um, uh, emergent Christians are actually attacking him and saying all of what he said is invalid because he's Catholic. So it's not just, you know, fundamentalists. Um, Protestants, I think, still have a tendency to do that, but two billion, the Catholic Church has two billion people and the Catholic Church teaches, for instance, that all truth is God's truth. But yeah. yet we say, we tend to think about this as, uh, oh, that's a liberal doctrine that's that's not traditional christianity and um, that's that's a minority position so i think we you know anyway i i could go on and no on. no I,
2: but i think you're i think you're onto something there i mean that's actually really interesting but because again because of the way because of the way that the evangel and I, again i'm i'm limiting my my comments to churches where i have experience okay so this is not meant to paint with a huge broad brush that they all do this but i think it's symptomatic of the larger issue but because of the way they view themselves and because of the way that they, they raise children, right? John and I were raised to pretty much this is the deal. Um, our church is our family. We, we didn't really even have friends outside of our church very much. So we're raised in this sort of hermetically sealed little environment. And then it's easy to assume that, that your view is, is, is the, is the, the mainline view. Like this is the mainstream way. And I was way, way older than I ought to have been before I was exposed to other people. And when, like, you know what? Actually, my sort of narrow fundamentalist evangelical way of viewing the world is a minority view by far. I mean, there are tens of millions of, uh, hundreds of millions, whatever, billions of, of non-Protestant, non-mainstream, I mean, you, anyway, who, who have never been taught uh, or embraced things like the rapture, or embraced biblical inerrancy, or embraced you know penal substitution—all these things that we were taught were cornerstones of our faith turned out to be peripheral issues at best in most people's minds, and so that that that's problematic in, on on a number of levels. And even the narrative,
0: the rhetoric surrounding calling, identifying themselves as evangelicals yeah, exactly. is, is problematic from a historical point of view because if you look at evangelicalism as a movement that came out of the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, um, it's, it, it's not necessarily the same thing as the fundamentalists that came about in the, the late 19th, early 20th century. Right. The the altar call, for instance. Um, yeah. What the hell it, was that? it was, was actually quite beautiful when it was invented. It was invented by Charles Finney, who was a, uh, one of the evangelical preachers in the 1800s. And, it, and what it was is he would have a revival. And um, if you wanted to follow Jesus, you'd come up to the altar. I think we're all familiar, all, any of us oh, who yeah. came. You'd come up to the altar and then he said, you want to give your life to Jesus? And if he said yes, he'd hand you a pen and he said, sign here. And he'd have you sign to join the abolitionist movement. Oh wow. So like the 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 uh the chasm between what evangelicalism um was um and I would and and still is in in more broader evangelical circles and fundamentalism is to the effect that all fundamentalists might be evangelicals loosely but not all evangelicals are fundamentalists and and even a, I don't think it's fair uh, and I don't identify as Protestant, so of course I don't identify as evangelical, but I actually go to an evangelical seminary, not a fundamentalist. I don't think anyone there believes in inerrancy, but I don't think it's fair for fundamentalists to go around calling themselves evangelicals when they don't actually ascribe to the tenets and the, the, uh, the essence of
2: evangelicalism. Um, there was, you know, well, phenomenal. It, to, to, to my way of thinking, they've utterly hijacked that word. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah sure. that and they, and I, I think hijacked it to a point where it's, I don't think it's redeemable or retrievable anymore. But now the vast majority of people that hear the word evangelical, um, it's associated with a voting block. Yeah. I mean, it's as much a political statement as it is a religious statement, maybe more a political statement than anything else. And, and when you have people, you know, the Marjorie Taylor, Taylor the or whatever her name is, you know, running around screaming about, you know, God, guns and Bibles, and she's, she's the face of, evangelicalism to a lot of people um and she's absolutely antichrist she well yeah i mean she's going to you know these are people who show up at white nationalist meetings and promote an agenda that is absolutely antichrist and yet they are trying to court the evangelical voting block and that's who they're tailoring their message to so that that word no longer means what it used to mean you know it doesn't and I, again I, we've had this conversation about certain there are certain words that John and I just you know, I don't use it anymore. I can't use them to describe myself anymore. Um, Christian is not one I'm ready to let go of. Um, I, I'm holding on, you know, to that one. But I don't, I, I, even though I do believe myself to be evangelical in the in the strictest sense of the word, I, I stopped using it because it's, no it's no longer useful. Yeah, John um, Sanders and I had a similar conversation
0: about this and he said that, you know, they, the fundamentalists have won. So he's given up use of the term as well. So, yeah. And, and, and then, I think that's probably accurate. I just, I'm, I'm, even though it's not my term, I'm just stubborn. And I know, I'm, so I'm, I like to
2: go to bat. I think, because I'm the, I'm the same. That's why I'm still, I'm still fine with calling myself a Christian and maybe five years I'll be like, you know what, they've won. I'm, I'm over it. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't think there's any, uh, there's no, there's no shame in conceding the, the war over a word. Um, yeah. If it no longer means what it means. And that's why, that's why John stopped using the word Christian was because it, it just, it requires a much longer conversation than are you a Christian? Well, let's parse what that word means. You know, if you think of Christian as this, then no, I'm not that. You know, um, if you have, have me aligned with a certain political group, well, I'm not that either. Um, so it's much more, what, what do they call the, uh, the the group from the Jesus Seminar we had on a little while back? They, the first couple hundred years, of the church, they called themselves followers of the anointed one, essentially. I can go with that. <laughs> you know, and that was as much a political statement as anything else, either, because oh, anointed yeah. one man, yeah. anointed one was king, and you were telling Caesar pretty much to go pound sand because you were following the anointed one, not him. So,
1: well, and you know, and, and I know that when I when I put out the the, the statement that I don't call it, that I don't call myself a Christian anymore, I, I know I'm being I'm also being provocative. I know that I'm causing people to then want to question what that means, and I think that's important. I think. There's a much deeper conversation that needs to be had than, are you a Christian? Yes. Okay. Let's move on. The question is, well, what, what does that word mean to you? And then that opens up the dialogue. So where we can say, okay, yeah, we agree on this. We don't agree on that. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that. And then we can have a conversation. But if I just, if someone says, are you a Christian? And I say, yes, they have their already, their preconceived notion of what that means. And then there is no conversation because it's all been shut down because if they're on the side that they think that all Christians are like, you know, the, you know, the Trumpers, then yeah, there's no conversation. And this is a really
0: good point, that words all have cultural baggage, whether good or bad. And, and that's why it's hard to, um, you know, when, when someone says, oh, I believe scripture is inspired, or I believe in the word of God, you know, so many people hear, you know, that, that very particular fundamentalist understanding of inspiration that assumes that the Bible is the word of God. And, you know, it, yeah, I think it's a really important dialogue to have about, you know, what terms are, what terms are just used. We, we need to stop using them and we need to move on to something else.
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, man, I tell you what, I hate to, I hate to wrap it up, but I feel like we're getting close to the end here. We got to wrap it up. I have not had a chance to read your book, I'll be honest, but I literally did just order it. So, <laughs> well, thank you. I will have it in a few days and I can't wait to, to tear into it. The conversation has been awesome. If you guys are listening and you have not, um, already picked up his book, man, let uh, let Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever be your friend. and Local and bookstore. Local bookstore. If you have that option, I know in the places where John and I live, <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, local. I don't even think I have a local bookstore anymore. I live in a city of 100,000 plus people and we don't have a local what bookstore. What city do you live in? I live in San Angelo, Texas. Okay. And we have, don't no, have a, we have local we have a couple store? little mom and pop stores, but they don't even sell new books. It's mostly used books and... Um, we don't even have a like a like even a chain bookstore. Yeah. Well, I mean, anymore. That's, that's,
1: that's an interesting conversation. I mean, I guarantee you, and, I, and I'll and I'll try to do it this way. Uh, I'm going to try to be better at this. Uh, we have all we have is a local used bookstore, but they'll order books. They'll order them for me. So I think you know it is it is really important in this day and age to not support you know necessarily Amazon. And I and I know that anyone who looks. Okay, right, now them, I'm canceling my order. <laughs> Hang on a second. The drone's already on its way. <laughs> But if you look on the liner notes of every one of our guests that have written a book, I link them to Amazon because I, I we got to be we got to acknowledge overlords. it's the easiest way for people to get books, and and in a lot of cases they don't have access to a bookstore. Because, yeah. No, here's the
2: question though: Can you order them directly from your website or from Choir or from? I mean, can they get them directly from the publisher? That's a good um, question. That's a good um, question too. Yeah, I don't
0: know. I I, no, I don't think so. I don't. Okay. I think if you go to acquire, um, I, I think if you go to, yeah, I think it links to Amazon. Okay.
2: All right. We'll, we'll work on Ralph. Yeah. We'll yeah. say, hey, <laughs> let's, let's uh, yeah, I, it's, it's really, it's, it, it is mind boggling though that in this day, and that's, that's the, you know, sort of the state of, 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 of commerce in America now that in a city of 120,000 or whatever we are, to we're, we're a fairly good sized city. I mean we don't have a Barnes and Noble we don't have a even a chain bookstore you know it's just really strange but um yeah bookstores are are a thing of I miss them man I used to hang out at them all the time but um uh, regardless uh get your hands on the book read it enjoy it um that will probably send you down a path of reading some other people um it always does for me I always opens up a little bit of a pandora's box of what what else is in there um there's so much going on inside of sort of the orthodox side of things that uh, if you're like me, when you first started reading it, you'd be like, oh man, I had no idea, you know, that 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 there there were a lot and a lot of people who didn't, you know. It, it is refreshing and liberating when you realize, oh, I don't have to believe this anymore. There's actually alternatives to some of the stuff that I find abhorrent and, and problematic. Oh my gosh, there's a whole other tradition that never believed any of that. So
0: Yeah, um, I would encourage listeners to check out the popular patristic series from yeah. St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. They're really new translations on a lot of the church fathers uh, and mothers and they're usually reasonably priced. Um So go read the church fathers and mothers.
2: Yeah, all of that, man. All right. Well, man, I, we John and I appreciate you, John. I'm, you have anything to add before I shut it down? I do not. <laughs> oh, profound <laughs> as always. <laughs> profound and deep. All right. Well, hey, man, we appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. We uh, yeah, we look forward really to uh, talking it. to you again at some point. But man, it really, really Always a great conversation. So, man, appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Happy to be on. Absolutely. Peace. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.